0: Good morning to you. We are glad you're here with us this morning. And um, to kick us off this morning, I want to get uh, an image in your mind. And it's this, uh, this thought of old pro athletes that don't know when to, to quit. They call it quits to hang up their cleats. The, uh, and so every offseason, there's a slew of pro athletes that are facing the consequences of aging, right? And they have to ask the question, is it time to face reality that I can't perform the way I thought I could and it's time to hang up the cleats, right? So, and for us, where we're sitting, if, uh, I don't think any of us, I don't know if any of us are pro athletes, I'm certainly not, uh, but I'm sitting there thinking, man, you've made millions. You've done everything that you could accomplish. Like, you've performed well, you've done all these things, why not call it quits and just enjoy the rest of your life? But for them, it's a different story, right? It's not the same, because their whole life they've trained for this. This has been their dream. This is what they've been working toward. They've, they've trained to perform, and they've performed to win, and they can't see what's on the other side of that reality because that's been so much a part of who they are. But for me, I mean, I was never much of an athlete, and I loved soccer. That's been my main sport, grew up playing it. And I'm now getting to the age where I have to face the reality that the cleats probably don't need to come on much anymore, right? So my oldest son plays soccer. He can now shoot the ball with more power than me. I have to admit it. It's, con- it's concrete evidence. We actually had it clocked uh, and timed. The, uh, and I had to face reality. You know, my touch is getting slower, my first step's getting slower, Eli you know, can juggle the soccer ball more than me. All my kids probably have a greater first step. I see it when, uh, when I try to chase them around the house. It just isn't as fast anymore. Um, and the reality is, is when they hit contact and they hit their bodies hit somebody else, I'm sore for three or four days and they, it's nothing to them, right? But it's not hard for me to face that reality because there's so much more to my life than just that sport I used to play. But for many top athletes, facing reality is dying to a dream because it's difficult for them to see what's beyond that reality. And this is a true for all of life. It's very difficult for us to face realities in front of us if we're not sure what's on the other side of them. And if you're joining with us for the first time, this is uh, we're, we've been in a series through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a wisdom book in the Bible. And this meets us where we are in Ecclesiastes. So we spent the first three weeks of our series looking at kind of a framework to understand this wisdom book where this teacher was central and it was going on this quest and on this quest he discovered a sense of futility in the world and then he found hope as well and we spent the next five weeks after setting up that framework talking about all the harsh realities in this world things that that make life really difficult and really keep us from finding true satisfaction in life and so this week and for the next few weeks we're going to transition to how do we navigate this futility in the world with hope. And so our big picture summary, and we didn't plan this, but this fits perfectly with where we're going today on Easter Sunday. It'll be on your screen, on your outline. This is what I hope the Holy Spirit helps us to see. You can face the harsh realities of this life because Jesus has conquered the harshest reality on your behalf. Let's pray. Father, as we gather this morning, you know every story of every person that's walking into this room. You know our struggles, you know our pain from our past, you know our hopes for the future. You know the things deep within that no one else in this room knows. And Father, you came to pursue each one of us. And you are at work in us. And so Father, I ask that you would do what we have no power to do, which is to make your word come alive in our heart this morning. To show us a sense of of what it looks like to face the reality of the harshness of this life, but to do it with hope because we know what Christ has accomplished for us. God, churches all over central Kentucky are gathering to preach about the resurrected Savior. God, I pray that you, that your word would be proclaimed and you would meet each one of us here. We need you. Amen. So we're gonna begin with the harsh realities of this life that we can face them, and we we need a little short recap up to our chapter that we're looking at in Ecclesiastes in chapter 6 of what's been happening. And I want to begin pointing back to chapter 1 verse 3 which says, what does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? So there was a quest that this teacher who had all the resources in the world at that time, wealth and wisdom to go after, and he set on this quest to see what is worthwhile in this world to live for. That's the word what he means by gain, that's what he was after. That When it's all said and done, when life is up, what have I profited? What have I walked away with? But he says here, there's going to be a scope of this quest, a qualification of this quest. He says this labors at under the sun. So in Ecclesiastes, that phrase means factoring out God. And so what he's saying here is, I want to go out into the world and factoring out God, I want to see what's worthwhile to live for. I want to pursue everything there is to pursue, understand everything there is to understand about the harshness of this life, and I want to come to the conclusion, what is worth having? That's his quest. And what we learned and what he said was the futility of it all. He uses this image of, this, this word futile is a word that we don't use often but it's an image that uh, is like a puff of smoke. There's something there but you can't really grasp it. And this is what he ultimately says is that I pursued everything there is out there and all it was just a chasing after the wind. It was, there was joy, there was some satisfaction but the moment I tried to grab it, it evaded my grasp. And so he says everything is meaningless as a result. So how did he come to this conclusion? Well, up to this point in chapter 6, and it's real important for us to understand this, to understand what he says in our passage today. But he observed these things. He observed that there is these limited pursuits in life, that wealth, work, wisdom, relationships, you name it. We can search for, to quench our thirst in these things, but they never deliver what we long for. They weren't meant to. And so he mentions these, he goes off on these pursuits. He talks about time and chance, that there's so much in this life that we have little to no control over. And oftentimes our lives are hurt by things that we had nothing to do with. So he says this, the, these, this harsh reality makes life difficult for us. Then he brings up injustice and he draws the observation that the world is filled with injustice at every level. And the vast majority of human history has lived under an oppressive, oppressive regime that whatever you gain, they could take at any instant. Now I know that's not most of our experiences in a representative democracy, but for the vast majority of the world, That's been the case in human history. And he observes that and sees that. And he lists the harsh reality of them all, death. That it stalks everyone and ultimately ends all our pursuits for gain. And so up to this point in chapter 6, he recaps all these things. And he says, this is why life is futile. But then he reaches this climactic point that's a shift in the book in, in 10 verses 10 through 12 in chapter 6. And I've wrestled with this passage, and, and the wording is confusing. As she read it, most of us in this room are probably like, what is this guy saying? And what I've landed on, that what's most likely happening at the end of chapter 6, and he's throwing his hands up in the air, and he says, under the sun or apart from God, who knows what's worth living for? That's where he comes. And so let's look at it in more detail on what he says. And let's, look at, let's start here in chapter 6 verses 10 and 11. And he says this, whatever exists was given its name long ago, and and it is known what mankind is, but he is not able to contend with the one stronger than he. For when there are many words, they increase futility. What is the advantage of mankind? And so again, the teacher is arriving at this point after six chapters of exploring pursuits and harsh realities in this life. And this is summarizing where he is. Now, this is a confusing wording going on here, but most theologians would say, and Shane's mentioned this in some of the other sermons, is that what the, uh, the writer is doing here is bringing up the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden in the situation they were dealt with, being tempted to run away from God. And it's using poetic language here. And he mentions this word name here and mankind, and the Hebrew word for mankind is also the name for Adam. Uh, and, and so... What you're getting a picture of is what theologians tell us is that the picture that God is naming Adam here and he's showing that he's in a position of authority over Adam. But what? So the, the teacher is wanting us in somewhat of a confusing way to get us back to the garden. So we've got to ask why. Why is he wanting us to think about this original situation that Adam and Eve was put in when God said, you can have all the fruit of the garden but don't eat of this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what I think he's bringing us into is this, is that Adam sought to find gain find something worthwhile apart from God in consuming this fruit and he found out quickly that he was the created one not the creator Adam sought to change reality to suit him and he sought what he wanted to get out of the world apart from God and in the end he found out it was worthless it only left him separated from God And when Adam came back, when God came back in the garden, it talks about here in verse 11, when there are many words, they increase futility. What's the advantage for mankind? All of Adam's words, when he came back in the garden, couldn't fix the situation. There's nothing he could say to God that would change the reality that he sought gain apart from God. And so it seems like the teacher here is reflecting back and he's connecting us back to the problem in the garden with what we're experiencing now. And he's trying to say to us, you can face the reality that we can't find gain in this world because in the very beginning, Adam sought gain and he couldn't find it either. So let's face this reality. And then he gets to this, I think, pinnacle point in verse 12. And you'll see it up on the screen here. And he says this, For who knows what is good for anyone in life in the few days of his futile life that he spends like a shadow? Who can tell anyone what will happen to him after him under the sun? And so if you remember... What we mentioned earlier is that the, the, the teacher was after finding gain. He's act, you know the way he says, he says, what's worthwhile in this world to live for? What's really good? What's really good to live for in this world? And he's speaking of this absolute good. And his quest was to find it apart from God. But he lands on this conclusion. And it's a shift in the book. And he says, who knows? It's as if he's saying, after all that I've done, I can't tell you who where you can find what's worthwhile. Now, he's not all of a sudden becoming postmodern, right? And that would not even have been a term they would have used then, where all truth is relative. No, what he's saying here, he's showing us once and again that if you factor out God, we're left grasping, and we have nothing solid to hold on to. And I think what he's getting at is that you and I live in this broken world together. And everything he's experiencing, we experience. And so who are you to tell me where to find good when you're under the same futility that I'm under? And there's nothing I can say that can break the shackles of futility for you as well. We're both in this hopeless place. Where do we turn? And I think what's happening here is that he is so fully engaged in these pursuits. This isn't a thought experiment for him. That he gets to the end and he throws up his hands. It's as if he's saying, I have chased every single pursuit that you can chase under the sun, and they've, none of them have quenched my thirst. And on top of that, I look around me and I see what chance has done to people having no control of their life. I see the, the pain that injustice has wrought. And then I realize that every single one of us is aging and facing death, which will rob us of every gain that we thought we had in this life. And he gets to the place of desperation. Where do we turn now? That's the point he's bringing us to here. The teacher is wanting us to join him in facing this reality. And when I say facing reality, what we mean is this, and this will be up on your screen, is that facing reality means that we stare at these shackles of futility on humanity, which the teacher has shown us, and then we feel our desperate need for a rescuer. I believe that if you really face the futility of life apart from God, and you don't distract yourself and numb, for, numb yourself, it sets you up with this desperation to hear from God. There's nothing I can tell you out of my own experience that will break the shackles of futility that you experience. There's nothing that you can share with one another. We have a desperate need to hear from someone outside of the futility. And that's where the teacher is landing. But here's the difficulty. It is very easy in a comfortable place like central Kentucky in the 21st century to divert yourself with enough pursuits that you don't really taste that none of them don't quench and to insulate your life enough for a while from some of these hard things of life so that you don't have to face what he's faced and that you always feel, maybe I can have something around the corner that will give me the hope that I long for. And what the teacher is saying is that you haven't faced the futility if that's the place you're at. Join me, see the futility, and it will set you up for this desperate need for a rescuer. My question to you, have you reached this place? Have you reached the place that you have looked around at the pursuits that you can have in this life? And although they deliver some measure of fulfillment that you've said, there's nothing there to quench my thirst. If you're doing these Connect Groups with us and you're working through the study, there were some questions that asked you, what what realities are you, it's difficult for you to face? And this is a difficult reality for me to face. I struggled to answer this question this week because at the end of the day, I still have these parts of me that think work will do it, that think the might or right amount of wealth or comfort will do it for me. But the teacher's calling me to join in here, to face the reality. Have you reached the place that, that you see that you just can't make life work for you, that you can't fix the brokenness of your life in this world? Again, it was another question that was hard for me to face there was a part of me as I looked at the brokenness that I just said, you know what, I just want to control these three or four things in my life. If I can make those work for me, it will insulate my life from the suffering I want to avoid. But the teacher is saying, come, join me. Face the reality. It's painful for a moment, but then you sense your need for a rescuer. All along when we've gone through Ecclesiastes, it was emphasized that this book wasn't given to us in a vacuum, that this is part of a larger canon of Scripture. And so when the teacher of Ecclesiastes has, who knows, the Bible isn't silent after that question. And I'm not saying that the teacher goes on. I'm saying the Bible answers that in every question with the person of Jesus. And so we're not left wondering what is good or where we can find real gain. And so the good news for us this morning is that God has pursued us, and he is pursuing us. He sent the teacher to expose the darkness and futility of this world. But then he sends his son to rescue us from it. Jesus came to bring full light, to break the bonds of the futility that we experience and lead us life to life in him. And so we're called here to face the harsh realities of this life. But on this Resurrection Sunday, the reason why we can face those harsh realities is because Jesus has conquered the harshest of them all. Let's look at our passage in Acts 2. It says this, Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him from the dead ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. And so my question here is, we, this Bible is one grand storyline. How does what we read here about Jesus answer the futility and the question that the teacher says in Ecclesiastes 6? Well, the first thing we see is that Jesus was born into this futile world. Think about it. God didn't stay distant and leave us to the mess that we caused. He entered into it. Notice here it says Jesus from Nazareth. That's his hometown. That's the small town where Jesus grew up in. Jesus was a man. He was literally born into this world. You don't say statements like that unless they're verifiable. And what does that mean? He voluntarily, the king of all creation, voluntarily shackled himself in the futility that you and I experience so that he could identify with us. And become our substitute. That's one way he answers this question from Ecclesiastes 6. And what else do we see? We see in his ministry that he gave, up t- he, gave, he gave us taste of his power to break this futility. We see here that he came doing miracles, wonders, and signs. Are those miracles, wonders, and signs, when you think about them, are they not pushing back the futility we experience in the world? I mean, think about it. We talked about limited pursuits, right, that left people thirsty. He came to the woman at the well and he says, You are seeking satisfaction in all these other things that will not quench your thirst. I will give you a living water that will quench that thirst. To the people he fed miraculously with bread. They come wanting more, and what does he say? I am the bread of life. Taste of me, and you will hunger no more. He came to answer those pursuits. Time and chance left people suffering. What did we see that Jesus do? He healed people outright and set them free. justice and oppression that people were trapped under. He freed them, right? He let out Mary who was trapped in demonic oppression. He let out the adulterers trapped under religious oppression. He even let out the oppressors and freed them by the power of love. People like Zacchaeus and Levi so that they would turn from oppression to living lives of sacrificial generosity. This is what he did, breaking the power of futility. And we even in his ministry get a taste of his power over the ultimate destiny that makes life futile. He raised Lazarus and the widow's son from the dead. So he was born into this futile world. He was shackled with the futility that we experience, and his ministry showed us the power he had over the futility. But then we see in this passage the great hope that we have even above his earthly ministry. And we see this in verses 23 and 24 specifically. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you use lawless people to kill him and nail him to a cross. So Jesus suffered the greatest injustice. He suffered as a sinner in our place taking on the punishment for our sin. That was God's plan. It wasn't happenstance. But then look at verse 24. This is the ultimate thing we celebrate this Easter Sunday. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. So he rose from the dead, and this has the most profound implications for the futility that you and I experience in this world. The pains of death would not, would be ended. And so the greatest of the harsh realities was death. And this greatest of harsh realities, none of us can escape, but Jesus conquered it. And in his resurrection, This means that if you and I are united with him by faith, that he becomes your savior of the greatest and the harshest reality of all. You and I had no power to break the shackles of this futility. The teacher, all he could do was shine the light on it so that you would see it. But Jesus came to break those shackles and free us. And so let us just think through those harsh realities and what this means for us. It means for the shackles of limited pursuits, they've been broken. That his death secures real gain for us, real profit at the end of life. His resurrection has secured for us a relationship with the Creator who alone, who alone can quench this deep thirst that you and I walked in with this morning. The shackles of time and chance have been broken. His death and resurrection means He is now our shepherd. So no longer do we have to fear not having control over our life because the one who does have control Loves us, has laid down his life for us, and promised to walk with us in all the suffering we'll experience. And not only that, he ensures that he will work out all things, those things not in our control, for his glory and our good. He breaks the shackles of time and chance, he breaks the shackles of injustice. His unjust death means that he can identify the, with the millions who suffer under injustice. They can understand that the Savior of the world knows what it's like to be oppressed. That's what that means. And his resurrection means that injustice won't have the last word, that he will come again as the resurrected king and end all oppression for humanity forever. He has broken the shackles of injustice. And it also means that the shackles of death have been broken. We will all experience the remedies, the remnants of this futility. Every person in this room is going to age and die. It's inescapable. But his resurrection I means that death is forever conquered. So death under the sun, meaning factoring out God, when the teacher talks about death, it's the worst thing imaginable because it ends all your pursuits of gain. And from the teacher's mind, factoring out God, you will no longer be known, you will be forgotten, and there will be no more joy. And he says, that's the harshest reality of them all. But has Jesus' death and resurrection not flipped that on its head? What does it mean for us? That physical death now is the pathway to being fully and forever freed from futility in his presence. Now, death, instead of us no longer being known, we will be fully known. All the things we've done will be fully known by our God, we will be fully loved. And we will be fully filled with joy in his presence and forever. That's what his resurrection has secured for us. And so Grace Church, the resurrection of Jesus truly is the greatest North Star. As we think about how do we navigate the futility in this life, we can face the harshest of realities because Jesus has entered them and conquered them on our behalf. And so where do we go from here? Two points of application for us this Easter Sunday. The first one is this, is that, let us not numb or distract ourselves from the futility around us. You have a quote on your screen by a guy named Oz Guinness. He says this, we live today in the grand age of diversion, and the reasons why are obvious. With our economic prosperity, our high-tech devices, and the cornucopia of entertainment pressing for our attention, we can surround ourselves with diversion from cradle to grave. We do not focus our intention on anything for long. We do not ask the good life what the good life is and what it requires. Happiness is a small circle, and it's no surprise that the last thing on most people's minds at any moment is the question of meaning of life, the coming of death, and the priorities that are needed to choose wisely. What Socrates called the unexamined life that is not worth living now seems to be the life more people have slipped into than ever before. And so the plea with us this morning is that we wouldn't divert or distract ourselves anymore. We wouldn't numb ourselves to these realities, that we would face reality that there is no pursuit in this life that we can go after that will quench the longing that we have. That we would face the reality and not divert ourselves from the fact that we cannot control our lives. That we'd face the reality that death is coming. That we would face it with this hope that there is a resurrected Savior that has gone before us. And so let us fix our eyes on Him, Jesus, who has come to rescue us. The shackles of all the harsh realities are broken. It means as we walk out this morning, you and I can face growing old. You and I can face the pain and betrayal of experiences and relationships in this life. You and I can face an empty bank account. You and I can face... Goals that won't get accomplished, or goals that are accomplished and have no sense of meaning to us. You and I can face a cancer diagnosis. You and I can face the misplaced shame that we have because of the trauma in our past. You and I can face a story that seems so broken that we have no idea how God could put it back together. And we can face those harsh realities. Because Jesus' resurrection has assured us that not one of those things will define who we are or what we're destined for. His resurrection has secured a new era where we can find true gain in being known and loved by our God and King. And His resurrection is ushering in a new era where He will make all things right once again. Let's pray. Father, there are a lot of different stories in this room, a lot of different backgrounds, but there are a few things that unify us. Every one of us are bent towards chasing after other things beside you to quench this thirst that we have. Every one of us are subject to not having control over our lives, and, and there are countless, countless things that have brought devastation in our lives that we had no control over. Every one of us look out on this world and we either face injustice or we are the oppressors. And every one of us are aging and will face the reality that we will die and this world will forget us. But instead of leaving us in this mess, you sent your son Jesus to take on these shackles of futility and to conquer every one of them so that we can be fully and forever known and loved and filled with joy in your presence. Oh God, would you meet us if there are those in this room that have not tasted that, that you would set them on a quest not to find gain apart from you, but to find the gain that's found in you. God, if those in this room that are struggling in their story and know you but struggle to really believe that you are the answer, that you are the real gain, would you give them a greater taste of it today? And for all of us who are suffering under these futilities, Would you let this song that we sing from cradle to grave, would you let the word we proclaim lift us with hope at the joy we have in you as the resurrected Savior. Amen.